Right. Jared's going to preach today. No? No, okay. He's going to go help the kids, so... Anyway, well, I'm glad to see everybody here. I know we've got a lot of people gone this week and and out on the road and doing all sorts of different stuff. Some people are fishing. Some people are hunting birds, or I don't know if they're hunting. They're shooting at birds. I don't know if they're hitting anything, but they're they're shooting at them. So, but I want to pick up where we left off last week as we begin to kind of unfold and unpack this idea dealing with the area of communion specifically. And we've been in this series, the alternate reality. Looking at the definition here, the world or the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to an idealistic or notional idea of them. And this is so crucial to our understanding is that even when it comes to the things of God, we have an idea of who He is and how He should respond and whatnot, but that's not necessarily based on truth. It's not really necessarily based on reality, because the only thing that we have to work from is Scripture. If you don't have the Scriptures... Anything that is said about God is simply an opinion. Because the scriptures are how God has revealed himself. His character, his mindset, his will, his love, his compassion, his mercy, all of those things are revealed through the pages of scripture. And sometimes what happens is that we allow these ideas, these cultural ideas of who God is or who Jesus was and what he wanted and what he did to creep in that we get upset with God because we think he should respond a certain way even though that certain way is outside of his character. Does that make sense? And so the problem we have here is that we need to know is what is God doing? What was his plan and what's taking place? In John chapter 17, verse 13, it says, But now I come to you that these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is true. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. And this idea here is that Jesus came into a world that he created. But he wasn't of this world. Because who was in control of the world at this point? It wasn't God. You know the term that God is in control? Well, what does that even mean? Because if the world around us looks... As crazy as it does, you're like, well, how is God in control of that? Someone needs to take the wheel. And apparently it ain't Jesus. That's a joke. Stay with me. Okay. Carrie Underwood would not appreciate that joke. But, I mean, but the reality is it's like, well, wait a minute. If God's in control, what on earth is happening here? And so when we talk about this, it's like God ultimately is in control. Yes, but here Jesus came into a world that he created, but he's not a part of. And he said, these people, these my disciples... They're in it, but they're not of it, just as I'm in it, and I'm not of it. And the world hates me, and it will hate them. And so as a result of that, I send them into this world to be set apart. And for their sakes, what's he say? I sanctify myself. In other words, I set myself apart for their sakes, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Set apart by the truth. And so as we talk about this and we're going forward, we've got to understand something here. Is that what we're looking at here in Luke chapter 22, when we're talking about this idea of communion, is what's taking place. Because there's a very powerful uh, statement that's made that's what's going on here in verse 14. It says, when the hour had come, he sat down with the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it. 
until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Now, we've read this in a couple of places, in 1 Corinthians 11 and other places, talking about the Passover meal that's taking place here. And what we're beginning to do is just to look at this as as pragmatically as we can and say, well, what is happening here? Because how we do it, again, we've taken something that Jesus has ordained, and we've turned it into some sort of a sacrament, and it's it's divulged of all meaning whatsoever. We don't even know why we do it. We just do it. So we take this little cup and this little terrible cracker. I wish they'd flavor these things. They're terrible, okay? But anyway, and we do this together. We do it once a month, and you should be doing it at home. But oftentimes, we don't ask the questions like, why? You know when a toddler is growing up, and they're starting to talk more, and they get to that inquisitive stage, and their number one question is, why? 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 They say it a million times. doesn't matter what it is. Put on your socks. Why? Brush your teeth. Why? Don't kick the dog. Why? Like whatever it is. And it's this inquisitive nature that we have. How come we don't do that with the things of God? How come we don't encourage the why question? Like why, Jesus, do we do this? We're doing it in remembrance of Him. Why do we do this? And that's what we have to begin to understand. And what I begin to show you is that I, primarily what I wanted you to see, let's put it that way, is that the blood aspect always makes sense. We're talking about the Passover meal, the Passover lamb, Jesus being that Passover lamb, the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No problem there. We know that when we went into Exodus chapter 12 and we began to look at the idea of the Passover and how they had to take the lamb and set it apart four days before, and they had to examine it, make sure it had no spots, no blemishes, nothing wrong with it, and then on the 14th of Nisan, they would have to go in and they would uh, slit his throat. And they would have to apply the blood. Okay, you guys know how all that went down. And if it wasn't for the application of the blood, the angel of death would still come in and consume them. They had to consume the, the, the body of the lamb and whatnot. And they had the bread and they had all these different things. And it's like, okay, that's great. I get that. If you've ever been to a Seder meal, you can see all of this pointing to Christ. But here's the question, is that what on earth does the bread aspect? See, Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. That part there has nothing to do with the Passover picture, the typology. Because his body, as we know, was bloodied and beaten. Well, the body of the lamb wasn't. It had to be perfect. They didn't beat the fire out of Mary's little lamb and then eat it. They would humanely kill it. They would sacrifice it. So what was, that, what was going on here? And as I showed you guys last week, I think it was last week, is that there's more to the story that's going on here. You see, what's happening here is, is greater than a, just a simple <coughs> excuse me, sacrament that's taking place. Jesus is preparing here a covenant meal. <coughs> excuse me. Covenant meals took place all the time. They would take place between God and man. And I'll show you examples of that. They would take place between nations. And when they would make these covenants, it was often set apart with this meal. So some of the covenants that they would take place with is that there were promises and commitments which bound these parties to one another. 
In one way or another, they'd be bound together. There were terms and conditions of the covenant. Those would be clearly communicated as well as the consequences of not keeping them. Then the covenant would be sealed and it would have the ceremonial act where they would take an animal, they would sacrifice it. Sometimes they would throw blood on the people involved with it. You guys should remember some of this because we've read some of this stuff. But most of the time, the ceremony would include a meal of some sort. And it would be between the two parties, or multiple parties if that's the case. And it would be friendly, and it would be a peaceful acceptance of the terms of the covenant. And then oftentimes, there would be a monument of some sort, perhaps an altar, that would be erected. Or something that when you saw it, that you would remember. Remember the covenant. You guys with me so far? So what would happen is, is that if somebody broke the covenant, there would be curses associated with it. And if they kept the covenant, there'd be blessings associated with it. But there was always a sense of solemnity that when they would have here, they would take it very, very serious. And what I'm trying to show you is what Jesus was doing here was a covenant meal. The new covenant, and we'll get more in depth than that in the weeks to come, because we don't understand it. But the new covenant isn't between God and man but between father and son on behalf of mankind. But man is a participant in this covenant, even though they brought nothing to the table for the covenant. I know that's a lot. It'll make more sense here in a couple of weeks. But bear with me. I want to show you some examples of this covenant meal idea of what it is and what's taking place so that you can get the picture here and how significant the one in Luke with this, what we call the, the communion story, the Last Supper, what's so significant and what, that it, uh, what it means for you and I. So let's turn over to Genesis chapter 26. I'm going to try to go slow because I'm going to read a lot and I want you to pick up what's happening here. In Genesis chapter 26 verse 1 is where we're going to start. It says, there was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. Now, here's the thing. We've got two parties here. You've got Isaac and Abimelech. Who is Abimelech? He says he's the king of the Philistines. Well, what do we know about the Philistines? They don't get along very well with the Israelites. Okay? There's a long history of hatred. Okay? Goliath was a Philistine, as an example. Okay? Or part of the Philistine army. Verse 2. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will uh, be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father. What oath? What oath is he talking about? You have the land oath, and that the, uh, the genealogy oath, or the, the children. I'll make you the father of many nations. So he's going to perform. So don't go to Egypt. Stay where you are. It would have been easier to go to Egypt, because in Egypt he'd have been away from the Philistines. He wouldn't have been dealing with them. And at this point, they're, they're kind of friendly with Egypt. Okay? It isn't until later times that it gets a little tense between the two nations. But he says, stay here and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham. I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Now, this is what we call the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? I'll go in more depth than this in the weeks to come, but just understand this. God made a promise to Abraham. It was very simple. Okay? I'm going to give you this land. It's going to be for your people. You're going to be the father of many nations. It really was that simple. 
Okay? What did Abraham have to do to keep that? Nothing. God made the promise to him. Okay? So that's it in a nutshell. Here in verse 6. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar, and the men of the place asked about his wife. And he said, she is my sister. For he was afraid to say, she is my wife, because he thought, lest the men of the place kill me uh, for Rebekah, because she... Uh, Kill me for Rebecca because she is beautiful to behold. So apparently, Rebecca, pretty good looking gal. Okay? And he is a chicken. And he just assumed that they're going to kill him and take his wife. <laughs> what a man, right? All right. Now it came to pass a long time. How long? We don't know. But a long time. That Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw, and there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. And Abimelech called Isaac and said, Quite obviously, she is your wife. So how could you say, she is my sister? Okay? Anybody ever seen Tommy Boy? You guys know what I'm going? Okay, yeah, anyway, it's a, it's a side reference there. So whatever he was doing was not normal for brother and sister, right? Because Arkansas hadn't been invented yet. All right, let's keep going. Isaac said to him, because I said, lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife, and you had a, would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech charged all his people, saying, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now, there is a cursing that would have gone on by touching this wife. But Abimelech is making sure everybody knows. Off limit. You cannot touch her. <coughs> Excuse me. Then Isaac sowed in that land, and he reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. The man began to prosper and continue prospering until he became very prosperous, for he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. So the Philistines envied him. Now, what did God promise him? If you stay here, what will I do? I will bless you. Now, when you understand that a hundredfold return was unheard of, because most of the time, if they got a tenfold return, meaning that for every seed they put in, they got ten back, they were doing good. That was considered a booming harvest. That's not today's standards, but it was back then. So a hundredfold return was absolutely unheard of. And so the Philistines envy him because God is prospering him in this land. Verse 15, now the Philistines had stopped all the wells which his father's servant had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they had filled them with earth. And the Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So now he's pushing him out because he has grown with all his possessions and his servants that he is now stronger than Abimelech and his crew. So he doesn't want him anywhere near him. He wants him out of here. Verse 17, then Isaac departed from there and pinched his tent in the valley of Gerar. And he dwelt there, and Isaac dug again the wells which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father, for the Philistine had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. And he called them by the names which his father had called them. Also Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well, uh, well of running water here. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Isaac, because they quarreled with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over, quarreled over that one also. So he called its name Sitna, and he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rahabah, because he, for he said, for now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. So there's a constant battle going over these wells. Then he went up from there to Beersheba, 
And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servants Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord, and he pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servant dug a well. Now I want you to see something here. No matter what was going on, Isaac's obedience to God, he will continue to prosper no matter what. The Philistines would continue to be envious no matter what. And once again, God appears to him. And what is Isaac's response? He builds an altar there. It's a memorial. This altar is a place that he can sacrifice, but it's always a memorial. It's something that they can look at and they can remember. It's like, oh, I remember when God did this. Okay? Verse 26. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahazoth, one of his friends, and Phicol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, why have you come to me since you hate me? And have sent me away from you. But they said, we have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So we said, let there now be an oath between us, between you and us. And let us make a covenant with you. That you will do us no harm since we have not touched you. And since we have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So they see what God is doing. And they're fearful of Isaac because of what God has done for him. So now what do they want to do? They want to make a covenant with him. A covenant of peace. So look at verse 30. So he made them a feast, and they ate, and they drank, and then they arose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another, and Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. What did they do? They had a covenant meal. It was a meal of peace. It was saying that there is peace between my nation and Isaac and your nation and Abimelech, and that we will not attack one another. We will be friendly to one another. That allowed Isaac the ability to go through their land unharmed. Isaac and his servants. It allowed the Philistines to go through his land unharmed. Because they had a peace offering that was made. And a covenant meal, ultimately what would ratify it. You guys see this so far? That's what I want you to get. Let's go to Exodus chapter 18. I'll show you another example of this. Verse 1. Exodus chapter 18. Verse 1, it says, And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, and her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land, and the name of the other was Eleazar, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now he said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him, and they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptian for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. For in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, He was above them. So now he's referencing the gods of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering 
and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. See, there's a, a, a sort of covenant, a peace offering that is being made. Jethro has an epiphany because of the testimony of Moses. He hears what's happened and how God has made himself bigger than all the other gods. It wasn't that the other gods didn't exist. He was bigger than all the other gods. And so now he comes in here and he says, no, I see this for what it is. He makes an offering. Remember, he was a priest in Midian. He knows about sacrifice, but he's making a sacrifice to Yahweh. And so they come in and what do they do? They have a meal together. You guys, again, you should be seeing a trend here. Let's go to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32 and verse 1, it says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. And as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about the story of the golden calf. Okay? But there's something interesting in here that I want you to catch. Verse 2, And Aaron said to them, Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool, and he made a molded calf. And then they said, This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up and play. So what did they just do? They had a covenant meal with this idol. What I'm trying to show you is there's a principle here that goes through all of Scripture is that many times when two nations would come together, many times when you would see God and, and man, there would be a covenant meal, and it would be a meal of peace. It was something that was the, the breaking of bread. You know, that term comes for a reason, is that they broke bread. For you and I, being the culture that we are in today, the idea of having a meal together doesn't carry the same implications that it once did, because it's so commonplace. We just kind of do it. We all get together, we go out, we do our different things. But here, there was always strings tied to it. There's a reason that Jesus was just lambasted by the Pharisees about eating with the tax collectors and eating with the sinners. Because what he was doing is he was, when in doing so, in their mindset of the way they thought about things, is that he was basically saying, I am associating with these. I am green lighting their practice. Now, that's not what he was saying, but that was the mindset. So now we bring this back to what is happening in Luke. This meal that Jesus is, is partaking of. He says, with fervent desire, I have wanted to eat this Passover with you. That wasn't the first Passover that he'd probably eaten with his disciples. Why this one? What was so unique about this one? Well, we have to understand what's taking place here. You see, a covenant meal was often bringing peace between God and man or in, in uh, two nations. Well, look in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And that's interesting. We know what a prince is, the son of the king. 
But why Prince of Peace? Have you ever thought to ask that question? Why is he called the Prince of Peace? Why do we even know that verse? We know that verse because of the Christmas store. You don't have to go to church to know that verse, right? But why is he called the Prince of Peace? Well, look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. It says, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. That's interesting again. Made peace in what way? Because the opposite of peace is what? War. What is it good for? Absolutely. Thank you. Okay. At least somebody's awake today. But, but I mean, the thing is, is like, at war, at peace, what was the difference? They would come together and make a covenant. There would be this treaty, essentially. And it would have this covenant meal. And saying that we are no longer going to do these things. We're coming to these agreements. And that there would be peace among the nations. But Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. Implying that he is bringing this peace. And now we see that we're having made peace through the blood of his cross. So somehow his death and his blood is what has brought peace to us. Well, let's read another one. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinance, so as to create in himself one new man from two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So what did he do? He preached peace. When did he preach that? I mean, think about all the sermons, all the things that Jesus did preach. It says that he went around to all the cities. He would say that he'd preach that the kingdom of God was at hand. He would teach in the synagogues. He would heal the sick. Where does it ever mention him preaching peace? I can't think of a place off the top of my head. So, but here it says that he preached peace. He came and he preached peace. He himself is our peace. Well, how about Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14? This is dealing with uh, the armor, the spiritual armor. So stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of what? The gospel of peace. You see, these are all verses that we have read multiple times through the years. We've read them ad nauseum. In fact, we don't even think about, like, what does it mean, the gospel of peace? Because the gospel is that Jesus died, that he was buried, that he was resurrected. And because of that, I'm now right with God. Basically, I don't have to go to hell. I get to go to heaven now. And that's what we relegated the gospel to. That it's nothing more, it's nothing less. It is that simple. There's nothing unique about it. It's just that this is what it is. But when he says that, he is the gospel of peace. That he is our peace. That is through the blood of the cross that has brought our peace. <coughs> peace to what? You see, this is the part we're missing. And this is where that Passover meal, that last supper, that covenant meal that was taking place, that is what's being ratified here. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 1. It says, therefore, 
having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We have peace with God. You guys realize what a statement that is? I don't think you do. Because I don't think we can ever grasp it. Imagine a time for all, all human history. When was peace with God ever established? It never was. Because the only way that they could ever come to him prior to Jesus, okay, everything before that was this entire elaborate system that had to be a place in order for sins to be atoned for. How many countless animals were sacrificed? But no matter what they did, it never brought peace with God because they couldn't go into the presence of God. They would die immediately. They never experienced peace. And it's not only peace here, but there was never peace with any God. They were always continually making sacrifices. Well, why do you have to make sacrifice? It's an appeasement, if you will. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For the first time in human history, God and man are no longer at arms with one another. Because Jesus has provided a peace offering. And a covenant meal was, was partaken of ratifying that. See, this is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood of the new covenant. And he says, as often as you do it, you do it in remembrance of me. For the first time in your life, we don't fear God in that sense. We're at peace with him. But look, through whom also we have access by faith. From a kingship standpoint, who has access to the king? Only who the king wants. Nobody else, even the queen, did not have the right to just walk in to the throne room of the king anytime she wanted. She did not have that right. She had to be called. Now we have access. You see, I don't think we appreciate what's taking place here. Because when we read these things, we read it through our culture, we read it through our Western eyes, these lenses that we have on, and through the things that we think we already know. And we never stop to ask the question, is like, what is this peace aspect constantly? But if man was at odds with God, and Jesus through his work has created a bridge that has divided that, and that no longer there's this separation, we have peace with God, and now we have access to God. Who had access to God during the times of the temple? The high priest, one day a year, he was the only one who could enter into the presence of God. That was it. Because that holy place, that holy of holies, was the throne room of God. And it was behind this curtain, it's a very thick curtain, and he had to make a sacrifice for himself and get himself all cleansed on the day of atonement. Then he had to make a sacrifice for the nation. And then he would have to go in there, and he would enter in this. And if he didn't do it right, he would die. He'd have to do all of these things just to get it right. And then that one day, he was in the presence of God. Everything else he did from that point on was outside of the presence of God. But now, 
Like, do you guys see where we're going with this? Like, do you realize how powerful that is? That what Jesus did, that that meal is not just simply a sacrament. That he's saying that there is now peace between God and man. Because of what Jesus did. Look at John chapter 1. Verse 12. It says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, there's a story in Mark. It's in Mark chapter I don't know, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, somewhere in that range. Where the Syrophoenician woman comes to Jesus. Do you remember where it is? John 4? Not the woman at the well. No, no, no. Syrophoenician woman who is coming looking for healing for a daughter. What's that? Yes, yes, that one. So, it's in more. It's in other places, but... So, but anyway, and Jesus is sitting there, and, and she's looking, you know, for help. And he says, uh, it's not good to throw the children's bread to the dogs. And her response is, is unique. And she says, but even the dogs get the crumbs that fall from the children's plate. Now, we've often misunderstood that because we think that somehow he's insulting her. That's not what was going on here. Because to a Jewish mindset, that a dog was a scavenger. But she wasn't a, a, a Jew, she was a Syrophoenician. For them, we're talking about pets. And what it was implying is that we don't take the food from the children to keep the animals alive. Now, I know that's probably not popular today. But that's what he was saying. We don't take the food from the children just to keep the pets alive. These are pets. These are not scavengers. And she just says, well, yeah, but whatever falls, we get to partake. And he says, I've not seen such great faith even in Israel. You see, there's something that was taking place here. He's, he's opening this woman's eyes, and she's just so adamant that it's like, I, I have to have this. It was like this defining moment that, that man, this isn't just for the Jews. This is, this is for everybody. And it's so powerful. And here it's like, as many of them, he gave the right to become the children of God. To become a child of God implies what? Does a child have a seat at the table? Yeah. Does a child have a right to be taken care of from the parent? Yeah. Can a child make a demand? When I, when, can a child make a demand for nourishment? Not a new bicycle. The things that keep it alive. Like, there's a difference that's going on here. The relationship between God and man is now different than it's ever been at any time in history. And we've underplayed that because we don't understand its nuances. You see, look at Luke chapter 22 again. Verse 14 says, When the hour had come, he sat down with the twelve apostles with him. And he said, and with fervent desire, I have desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. 
And he took the cup and he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this and remember to me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant and my blood, which is shed for you. So he's doing this on behalf of them, and they are partaking. They are participants now in what's happening because, again, this covenant meal. But look at verse 24. It says, Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. What did he just do? There's a peace between them. And they now have access to the Father. You see, this meal, this covenant meal, was a meal of peace. There's now peace between man and God. Do we realize how powerful that is? What sacrifice do we have to make? None. We don't make a sacrifice. It's already been made. When can we enter into God's presence? Anytime we want. We can enter into that throne when we find the grace any time that we need it. Like, that is what's going on here. Finally, there's peace between man and God. For the first time in human history, all because of what Jesus did, the disciples are participants in that. You see, this is a covenant meal ratifying this new covenant. But what does that even mean? What is a covenant? What is this new covenant? We know that it's a better covenant based on better promises. Well, if that's true, shouldn't we know what those old promises were? What makes it better? What sets it apart? And what comes with that? As a result. See, when we begin to understand these things, it opens our eyes to our positioning with God of who we are, who He says we are, who we can be for Him. It's not just about you and I, it's about what He says that we are. Like to have peace with the King. Do you guys realize how big that is? I don't think we can ever fully grasp it because we've never lived in a world of which we don't have freedoms here. But you pull somebody out of North Korea as an example. They have no idea what it is like to live except under the thumb of a dictator. That was most of the world for a long time. Now the handcuffs are off. We have peace with God to worship Him at our leisure, I guess, for lack of a better term. It's so powerful when you begin to catch the messaging. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true, Lord, and we thank you that every aspect of it has been given to us by design, that nothing is there that we should take for granted, Lord, but every part of it is is there that we can be equipped and built up. And Lord, I thank you that you are giving us a greater understanding of who you are and who we are in relationship to you, Lord, that we can serve you better, to be used by you better, to do greater things for your glory. And so, Father, I thank you that you're opening up doors of opportunity for us each and every day that we can better serve you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you soon.